think we should start because time is very precious and uh, we are delighted to have you all uh, welcome to another event uh, organized by the Middle Eastern Center. And as you know, we, we're trying very much to be active and uh, I hope uh, expand the debate almost on a weekly basis. Uh, it really gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Dr. Hazem Qandil, uh, uh, a Cambridge University faculty and in political sociology and a fellow at St. Catherine College uh, in Cambridge. Uh, Hazem has just published uh, his fascinating book uh, titled Soldiers, uh, Spies, and Statesmen, uh, Egypt Road uh, to Revolt. Uh, and the book here is on sale, so I hope uh, some of you really uh, will take a look at this fascinating book uh, that has come out by uh, Verso Press in 2012. And really, as the title of the book says, he deals uh, Hazim with soldiers, that is the uh, uh, military as an institution, spies with the uh, security forces, and statesmen, the political leadership, and how the combination of the three uh, basically brought Egypt to 2011-2012. Uh, Hazem has not just published this book. Uh, he has published widely on a variety of topics, including, as I said earlier, uh, military security uh, relations, on the question of Isla Islamism, um, on the question of revolutionary movements in a variety of periodicals uh, and journals. And Hazem uh, has been also has taught at the American University in Cairo and at uh, the University of Los Angeles, UCLA, uh, in political sociology and uh, social movements uh, as well. Uh, Hazim will address the topic today, Egypt, uh, revolution as a gamble. And he uh, has mentioned that he is writing an article by the same title uh, for the London Review of Books. And he is uh, very kind to share some of his findings with us about really the whole idea of uh, what has happened, uh, where is Egypt heading uh, at this particular moment uh, in history. As you know, uh, most of you know, that Egypt uh, faces a two-pronged challenge today. You have a serious crisis political authority and legitimation, and you have a severe structural economic crisis. You have a political crisis, severe political crisis, and a severe economic crisis. And it's not just these are two separate crises. It's the convergence of the economic and the political crisis that basically represents a major threat, some of us believe, to the very survival of the Egyptian state and Egyptian institutions. I'm really delighted to have my colleagues, uh, Hazem, to shed light on the fierce social and political and institutional struggles that are raging in Egypt, in particular since the uh, uh, Arab popular uprising in 2011. And what I really uh, very much appreciate about Hazem's work, and I'm not exaggerating, it's its conceptual rigor and comparative nature, which many of us who work in Egypt lack, this conceptualization uh, uh, and also the comparative nature that he brings uh, to the field. So please join me in welcoming Hazem to the London School of Economics. I want to thank you, first of all, for uh, inviting me and such a uh, generous uh, introduction. 
First, like Fawaz mentioned, my book is about everything that happened in Egypt from 52 until 2012. So, but my talk today is going to be what happened after 2012. And so I'm not going to be talking about what's in the book. But of course, uh, the analysis provides the theoretical and historical background for my analysis of what happens afterwards. Now, since the revolt in January 2011, um, we've all been asking ourselves the question, how does this all end in the case of Egypt and many other uh, Arab countries? I believe that uh, many speculations have been provided, and I'm not here to provide you with more of them. I think a more fruitful approach is to try to explain today why is it impossible to predict how this all ends. Um, and the reason it's impossible is, as I will explain, the revolt produced a balance of weakness. No actor on the Egyptian scene can consolidate a new regime, let alone resurrect the old. No actor acting on its own can break this stalemate. The only way this balance of weakness can be overcome is through alliances. And here's the trick. There are many different combinations of alliances that are equally plausible. And each combination of alliances will put the country on a different trajectory. And so, since they're all equally plausible, it is impossible for us to predict which one will actually materialize. So what I'm going to try to do today is explore these key institutions, their assets, their agendas, and their options, and explain to you why many of their options are equally plausible. I will start with the military. Now, the Egyptian regime uh, established in 52 has not been as coherent as many of us suspected. Um, in my analysis, the Egyptian regime has been constituted as an uneasy partnership, a, a tension-ridden power relationship between these three institutions, the military, the security, and the political apparatus. From the very first moment, the military has proved to be a troublemaker, uh, a partner that drove the regime into several points of crisis. And every time that happened over the last six decades, it was the security establishment that rallied to save the regime. And so it was only normal that gradually over a period of six decades, the political institution shifts power, privilege, influence, and resources away from the military towards the security institution. And so Egypt, by uh, Mubarak's reign, metamorphoses from a military dominated to a police state. This means that when people take to the streets in January 2011, the military is no longer invested in the regime. The military is not comfortable with the power arrangement that was there. And it was only normal that the military would see the uprising as a golden opportunity to outflank its two unruly partners in the ruling bloc and create a more favorable power arrangement. 
And this is exactly what happened. Military steps in. It blesses, helps, dissolving, doing away with the political apparatus, presidency, the old ruling party. And it tries at the beginning, as I documented the last chapter of the book, to also dismantle the security apparatus, but it proves an impossible task. Security apparatus is stronger than the military suspects, and political partners are weaker than the military suspects, and so it skirts that task and maintains the situation as is, with the military increasing its autonomy and resources and the security maintaining everything it has. Now, the empty seat has been, for the past two years, this third seat, the political seat. And it has become, in my analysis, a game of musical chairs. Who is going to fill that empty seat? For the military, there were three candidates. The best candidate was the revolutionary forces. Uh, the military would not mind coexisting within a democratic framework as long as this democratic framework does not hurt its autonomy and resources. And whoever comes to power representing the revolution doesn't have the experience, doesn't have the networks to really threaten the military. It will be a few figures uh, representing the face of the revolution. People will be happy, and that will be it. And the military did try to negotiate with a number of them, but this proved to be impossible because of the extreme disorganization within the revolutionary forces and the fact that very quickly many of the members of this revolutionary camp started denouncing the military, publicly attacking uh, the military. With this option gone, the military had two other candidates to fill that seat, the old regime and the Muslim Brotherhood. The old regime is a bit problematic, even if it promises the military that we would not go back to the same situation of marginalizing you politically, because the old regime has too much experience in running the state, and so even if old regime loyalists promise the military that they will have a more favorable alliances, the military would be suspicious that they would not uh, return or resurrect the same kind of arrangement that was there before. The Muslim Brotherhood, therefore, seemed to be the best uh, candidate for a few reasons. First, it is organized enough. It has bases in the street. It can pacify the street, or so the military thought. Uh, it has experience with bureaucracy. It is a big bureaucratic organization, so maybe it can help run the state. And at the same time, it has a rhetoric, the Islamist rhetoric, that really justifies building a strong military. And at the same time, this Islamist rhetoric is disturbing enough for many of the geopolitical forces, regionally and internationally, that they would acquiesce to having the military supervise the whole political system in case there were any uh, excesses by Islamists left or right. So the Muslim Brotherhood seemed to be the most perfect candidate to fill that spot, and in fact, they did. The problem that the military quickly realized is that the Muslim Brotherhood is blatantly incompetent uh, in fulfilling any of these uh, tasks. It could not 
end the state of unrest in the street, and it could not really negotiate with the state apparatus. And so the military at this point is waiting to see whether the Muslim Brotherhood is going to do a better job or someone else will be able to replace them politically. And if that doesn't happen, if this deadlock uh, doesn't uh, get broken soon, the military might intervene. And of course, the talk now in Egypt of an impending coup. Now, if such a coup happens, we will be exactly in the same exact position. The military will not implement a coup that will establish a direct military government. That will not be the case. So they will have to choose again. Should we interfere with our full strength and bring in a couple of revolutionary figures as president, prime minister, um, members of cabinet, or will this not be enough? If it's not enough, and of course the disarray in the revolutionary camp suggests it's not enough, then they might be thinking of the second option. Why don't we now get some of the reformed and repentant elements of the old regime? They have experience in running the state. They will at least stabilize the state and start delivering again. And the people are willing to accept old regime elements right now after what they saw under the Muslim Brotherhood. A third option is why don't we carry out a coup to strengthen the government of the Muslim Brotherhood. At the end of the day, they have the legitimacy of the ballot box. And as long as we want to play this democratically, every time there's a referendum or there's an election, they'll win. And so if we intervene, we will frame our intervention as in support of democracy, as against the losing elements that have not won through the ballot box and are causing trouble outside. It is equally plausible, and there is a lot of thinking within the military, if we do intervene, who do we intervene with? It would be much easier for the military not to intervene and for a political deal to be struck. Now, so let me move to the, our three usual suspects and see whether they can do it on their own or not and what are the obstacles that they're facing. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood, our first candidate, believed that if they come to power, they will easily be able to control the state. They have the legitimacy of the revolution because they are not the old regime, right? They are the new face. And they do win the elections. And if they withdraw from the streets, they take a lot of the manpower in the demonstrations and rights and strikes and so on. And so if we come to power, the street will uh, become basically isolated and the unrest will die down. At the same time, the Muslim Brotherhood understood that they have a huge bureaucratic machine that we can just use to run the state on the levels of the bureaucracy and on the municipal level. Once they came into power, they discovered that things are not that easy. They discovered that the secular revolutionary forces are actually very loud and disruptive. They discovered that they cannot overtake the street. They also discovered that they cannot purge state institutions without having this revolutionary legitimacy. Because whereas, for example, before the Muslim Brotherhood came to power, there was a lot of talk of purging the judiciary, 
to cleaning it of old regime elements, as soon as the Muslim Brotherhood tried to do that on their own, instantly there was talk of trying to Islamize the judiciary. Same thing with state media. Before the Muslim Brotherhood come to, came to power, there was a lot of talk of needing to clean out Maspiro of the old elements. Now, whenever they try to purge it, it is framed as an attempt to Islamize state media. And so without the revolutionaries, there isn't much uh, way to go. At the same time, they discovered that the old regime elements have much more of an entrenched position inside all the state institutions, bureaucracy, public sector, public sector factories, state media, judiciary, and everything else. And so basically, any policy that they take, they simply cannot implement. And so the Muslim Brotherhood here started thinking of locking a deal with one of these two. They started having the dozen or so national dialogue rounds with these revolutionary figures to try to appease them. And at the same time, they made very clear uh, outreach to old regime elements by, for example, releasing from figures, for, for releasing from uh, prison some of the main pillars of Mubarak's regime, offering businessmen cronies of the old regime to settle, doing all kinds of uh, uh, offers of amnesty for the old regime. The problem with the Brotherhood right now is that both of these deals will cost the organization dearly. Locking a deal with the revolutionary figures will discredit the Brotherhood uh, ideologically. How can you compromise with liberals and leftists who are decidedly secular? Once you do that, once you have any kind of rapprochement with them, immediately you lose the conservative vote and you alienate some of your more uh, radical members, especially uh, the Salafis, the fundamentalists, who are with inside the Brotherhood and outside uh, the Brotherhood. And this is why they find it so difficult until today to make the necessary compromises. So why don't we lock a deal with the old regime? They are not as decidedly secular and they can play hardball. The problem is that this deal will cause them materially because they will have to share the pie with another entrenched patronage network. The Brotherhood has a lot of ideological members, but it has a lot of people who are in it to be able to benefit from the huge, vast resources of the Brotherhood. These people now expect that they will be able to win all the elections in the countryside, they will be able to control the municipalities in the countryside, they will be able to take all the jobs in the bureaucracy in the public sector, they will get all the privatization deals, they will be able to entrench themselves in the state media, but if you have to share it with an equally extensive patronage network representing the old regime, that becomes a bit of a problem. And so while the Brotherhood is moving one step forward, two steps back, and thinking, what do I want to lose? Do I want to lose ideologically? Do I want to lose votes? Or do I want to lose money, basically? Uh, while they're doing that, they risk the chance that their two rivals are going to ally together against them. And this is exactly what we've been seeing happening. Of course, the revolutionary forces were never the best friends with Islamists throughout the revolt, but they were essentially on the same camp against what we called Fulul, the kind of the old regime loyalists. 
Once the Brotherhood came to power, the old regime, as rational as always has been, began to convince the revolutionaries that the rational thing to do is to become friends with your enemy's enemy. Uh, if you abandon your thirst for retribution, if you bury your need for vendetta, maybe we can work together and save the secular nature of the state. And so they devised a two-pronged attack to basically overthrow the Muslim Brotherhood. One side of this attack is on the street. Constant, permanent subversion against the Muslim Brotherhood on the streets, demonstrations, rights, strikes, reaching the level of civil disobedience in entire cities like we saw with Por Said and Mansour. And of course, this unrest is based on the revolutionary forces, but it can be massively magnified by the money and resources of the old regime, who has control over a huge manpower and a lot of funds that they still control in Egypt and outside Egypt. While this is working, while this part of the strategy is working, the old regime is also uh, devising a very successful Trojan horse strategy, sabotaging anything the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to do inside the state. So the Muslim Brotherhood uh, presents laws. These laws are immediately revoked or challenged on legal grounds. They bring investments. These investments from Qatar, from Turkey, instantly find bureaucratic hurdles, red tape, all kinds of difficulties of them uh, coming in. They try to uh, do what everyone does with the state media, brainwash uh, citizens using the state media. They find that the state media is sabotaging a lot of their campaigns, whether in the newspapers or uh, on television. And so basically, the old regime elements have made Egypt ungovernable for the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're trying to lock this alliance with the revolutionary forces, which is basically, let us come together. Again, we can have a president from the revolutionary camp, we can have a prime minister, we can have whatever, but we will be uh, the foot soldiers of the state once more. We will be the people in business, in bureaucracy, and in all these uh, elements of, of the state and the economy. Now we come to the revolutionary forces. What are they going to do? Are they going to uh, go along with the Muslim Brotherhood, give them a second chance, understand that despite everything that happened, still the enemy is the old regime? Or are they going to lock a deal, this very lucrative deal, with the old regime? The problem is, as I mentioned at the beginning, the revolutionary camp is in a complete state of disarray, completely chaotic. And so, although they are too disorganized to come to power themselves, they are too disorganized to, to come together in a political party that can go into elections, or to come together in a revolutionary movement that can really overthrow the regime, the role that they can play is that of kingmakers. They can be the kingmakers that can help and support either the old regime or the Muslim Brotherhood in power. The tragedy is their disorganization is so much so that even this role of kingmakers is eluding them because they cannot make up their mind about anything. Uh, there are so many people representing the revolution, there are so many voices, and it's difficult to agree with any of them. If they keep doing that, 
if the Muslim Brotherhood keeps compromising with a few elements and then finds other voices renegating on this deal, and the old regime cutting deals with a few figures and then finds other figures say, well, you know, we don't belong to this kind of deal, then the old regime and the Muslim Brotherhood are going to say, well, you know, we are pragmatic uh, and let us just act together as responsible actors and isolate, leave out all these people. And of course, as we know, if the Muslim Brotherhood and the old regime lock a deal, um, at least for the short term, it will be easy to ignore uh, all the subversion out in the street for a while. Now, finally, I mentioned the subversion out in the street, so I have to come to the people who are supposed to deal with subversion in, in, in the street. The last player, and my favorite player, uh, in the Egyptian political scene, which is the security apparatus. Now, security apparatus's position is quite simple. Whatever happens, they win. Uh, as I mentioned, in 2011, the security apparatus became the most powerful, formidable institution in Egypt. It's, it is literally uh, omnipotent. And once the revolt happened, uh, the security apparatus has not been officially influenced in any shape, way, or form. Officially, meaning has not been purged, has not been restructured, has not been dismantled, has not been punished. Not a single person from the general to the NCO has been held accountable for anything they did during the reign of Mubarak, during the revolt, or after the revolt. And of course, we've seen the latest tragedy, which uh, was on, on January 26th, when there was this clear plot by the security to punish the ultras in Pursaid uh, a year ago, and people thought that finally this is the moment where the security apparatus is going to be held accountable for something they obviously did, and not a single person in the police or military uh, or the security apparatus has been even named uh, in this uh, latest ruling that uh, passed death sentences on 21 civilians but no one in the security apparatus. For the security apparatus, here are the options. The revolutionaries come to power. That's great, because they have absolutely no experience with running the state. And so they'll come to power and they'll say, well, you're very bad, you should you respect human rights. And they'll say, well, fine, we'll do that. Um, and then, once the revolutionary forces try to punish them in any way, they basically just let their hands go. Subversion and chaos will remain in the street. The economy will become stagnated. Crises will start here and there, like we've seen in the last two years. And then whoever wins as president from the revolutionary forces are go is going to make this phone call to security and say, well, just please do whatever you did to stabilize the situation, and we will reform you sometime in the future. And we've seen this happen exactly at the beginning of the revolt when Assam Sharaf and Mansour al-Aisawi, supposedly rep representing revolutionary forces, came to power with a great agenda of restructuring and reforming the security and ended up just telling them, please, business as usual, do whatever it takes to you know, maintain security. If the Muslim Brotherhood wins, as they are right now, that's even greater. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, as we all know, uh, is structurally repression-friendly. Uh, it, is, it has been an underground organization for, for a while. It's very paranoid. It sees conspiracies everywhere and appreciates a strong security apparatus that can foil 
these conspiracies against Islamists and against Islam, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has in fact told the security apparatus, well, if we come to power, you just need to convert to the good cause. You'll do exactly what you did before, but for the right reasons. You will fight the really bad people, not the us, Islamists, good people in opposition. You will fight the people who are the enemies of the state and the enemies of Islam and, and so on. The Muslim Brotherhood also has a social reform program which requires a very formidable policing institution to kind of uh, monitor piety all across the country. So there's no reason to think that if the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamists stay in power that the security will be affected in any way. What happens if the old regime comes to power? Well, the devil you know. We'll go back exactly to doing things the way we did before. It's great. We've had a great understanding for 60 years. It worked, and there's no reason for it not to work. And so on the short term, the security apparatus needs not do anything than just wait and see. And the security apparatus has been doing so. They have not deployed full force at any point in the last two years. They engage in these short-term skirmishes for a few days, commit terrible atrocities, and then withdraw. And then let the next insurrection happens and ignore it. And then the one following, they interfere. And what they're basically doing is they are achieving a very smart strategy. One, they're turning public opinion against the chaos of the revolution. They're making people hate revolution and just wanting to go back to normalcy. So they would let subversion, insurrection, strikes happen for a while and people seeing them happen. Then they would intervene and strike against revolutionaries with, with the wrath of God to show whoever might come to the political power that, you know, we, we still have it in us. We still have it in us to be ruthless. And we can do it. And we're waiting for the highest bidder, right? Uh, we are assessing the dowry, choosing the bride, and whoever's going to pay our price, this is a sample of what we can still do. Now, the reason I keep repeating this is on the short term, because what the security does not know, and what the army does not know, and what most of these political actors really do not know is that things are going to be very different on the medium and long term. Because in my analysis, the most important change that has happened in the revolution is the undercurrent of empowerment that the people have come to acquire. Egyptians really broke the barrier of fear they have discovered great inventions in the history of humanity, like fire. So, for example, before, security officer would slap you on the face, and then you would try to send your story to the newspapers, right? Now a security officer slaps you on the face, you torch their vehicles. Before, the security would send a force to your house, destroy it, slap around your family, drag you to the detention center, and then you would cry over what happened. And you'd find someone, human rights activist, the gallant human rights activist, to kind of get your story out. Now, you take a few friends and you burn the police station, right? Uh, and they have not only discovered that they can do this against security, they also discovered they can do this against the military. They discovered that you can also attack tanks 
not just armored vehicles of the uh, anti-riot police. And it works. They discovered something even more interesting, is that you can actually uh, invade the presidential palace. You can throw in napalm cocktails on the presidential palace and actually go in through the doors. And the president will run through the back door in his car. All these great inventions uh, that Egyptians have come to discover after so long pose the biggest problem. But it is not a problem uh, that will be solved anytime on the short term. It will only be discovered when a clear political solution is reached, the political slot is filled, the military is satisfied, the security gets the price they want, and then they decide to actually go out and pacify the society. Then they will discover that this is impossible. And once they discover that this is impossible, I think that the Egyptian revolt is going to get on a whole new different trajectory uh, because the truth of the matter is the Egyptian state does not have the economic resources to satisfy the needs of the people. It does not have the ability to carry out the necessary administrative and political reforms to satisfy all these people. And since these people would not be satisfied, would turn violent or at least would not obey authority, authorities in one way or the other, then we will have a very complicated and again impossible to predict situation on our hand. So to sum up, I think that it is useful to keep these two situations separate from our minds. What is happening right now on the ground is a negotiation between three political parties to break the deadlock and decide who is going to occupy the role of the political partner in this power triangle. And they might do it on their own and they might need a nudge from the military through a coup. But once that happens, and it will inevitably happen in the next few months, then we'll need to see the bigger picture of the important psychological and social changes that have happened to Egyptians after the revolt, and then probably need another uh, lecture to discuss uh, how that might possibly be resolved. Okay. Hopefully sooner rather Thank than you. later, Hazem. Thank you. Okay. Thanks Thank you very much. much. We have about uh, 40 minutes for questions and answers, so we'll take rounds. Shall we say four questions in a round? Okay. And, uh, you know, please be precise and uh, no commentaries, please, just questions. And we'll start. I'm sure you have, we have many questions. Who would like to start first, please? And uh, why not introduce yourself, your name, and, and where are you? Who are Thank you. Three more questions, please. I mean, how viable is the question really returning to mm -hmm. politics? Two more questions in the first round. Please. 
Yes. Answer the three questions because there's a lot to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Let's, let's we'll, we'll take three at a time. Okay, so I can Please. remember. Yes. Well, okay. Well, the first for the first question, I think, of course, I have a limited amount of time here, but in the analysis as uh, in the book, um, this power triangle. And that means really you must read the book to get the answer. Unfortunately. I mean, he, he, he does not have the time to. No. So. Uh, but I'll try to get, give you a whip of it. It's uh, the power triangle is deeply affected by everything that happens domestically and geopolitically. So just for example, in the American case, uh, it has been thought that the military was very careful about uh, maintaining uh, the, the relationship with, with the Americans. In my analysis, that has not necessarily been the case. Uh, because the American aid to the military, for example, is very geopolitically crippling. It comes with conditions. These conditions are that the Egyptian military cannot play a role in the region. Now, not necessarily my playing a role not necessarily means uh, a confrontation with Israel, but actually a role in anything. So when they tried to play a role in Sudan, it was ruled by, out by America. When they tried to play a role in Lebanon, it was ruled out, sending out peacekeepers. When they tried to play a role in the security of the Gulf, the Damascus Declaration, it was ruled out. So actually anywhere they turn to, they find that there's nothing for them to do versus the uh, Syrian military that was allowed to play a role in Lebanon, the Saudi military that was allowed to play a role in Bahrain recently, uh, all the other, the Turkish military that was allowed to play a role in northern Iraq. So I think that the American relationship uh, comes with conditionalities that has really been a source of controversy within the military establishment. This is just one small element of how geopolitics uh, um, comes in. Well, you know, how about counterterrorism? Well, again, <laughs> even for or even for counterterrorism, <laughs> uh, even counterterrorism, which uh, was Egypt had an important role with, was completely assigned to the security uh, apparatus. Well, yeah, no, this, no, this is important. <laughs> Uh, because while other, other countries played a role via their militaries, in Egypt it was the civilian intelligence that was supposed to contribute to uh, counterterrorism. And the rapid deployment forces uh, for counterterrorism operations were mostly within the interior ministry, not, uh, not with the military. Okay, well, for the second question, I seriously uh, dispute that the military can force its agenda or force the way Egypt is going to develop in the future. And this is why I'm saying two things. First of all, the military will not dare carry out a coup on its own, meaning that they will intervene, create a military government, a military president, and that's it. They understand, and they understood in the past two years, that they have to have a political cover, a legitimate political partner in doing so. Also, the second thing I mentioned is that the military will soon realize that even if they create this favorable political environment on the short term, they will soon discover that this political actor cannot force its will on the population, 
and that every once in a while the military might need to be called in to control the situation, like when the president called them in to uh, apply, implement a uh, curfew in three canal cities. So again, on the short term, they understand that they have a humble role to play. Soon they understand that they actually have no role to play. Uh, and this will be kind of a very uh, difficult moment for them to face, and a difficult uh, option. Finally, again, in the case of Syria, I was trying to um, explain that this power triangle model really applies to cases where you have very clear institutional identities. So it needs to be a case where there is sectarian, uh, religious, ethnic homogeneity. In the case of Syria, of course, like in Iraq, that's not the case. So within the military, you have Alawites, you have Sunnis. Same thing within the different security institutions, which complicates the picture, complicates the power balance. The same thing applies with tribalism. So, for example, in Yemen and Libya, militaries are also penetrated and the security establishment with different tribes. And so Egypt is a pure case. Other cases that I worked on, Iran and Turkey, are also pure cases for this model, but not Syria uh, and not of the other countries. Thank you. Please. Why not uh, speak? Oh, I don't even uh, Actually, so. we're recording that way. Yeah. So. Whatever. Um, I'm Jason Pack. Uh, I'm a member at your college, St. Catharines at Cambridge, and I'm a Libya expert. And I wanted to actually build on the, the last question here, which ties into the cohesiveness of the security services and exactly who they are. When, when you were mentioning the security services, you were saying, you know, in any situation, they, they win. And this makes me want to ask, what's their social identity? Obviously, we know in Syria the security services are largely Alawite, and in, in Qaddafi's Libya, they came from really only two tribes, the Makarha and the Qadhafa. So in Egypt, what, what are their social backgrounds, and, and what class or regional things does their dominance stir up in the actors who are opposed to them? Because does not that social cohesion lead to the ways in which their opponents will want to target them in the society. Thank you. Thank you. Please, we have a question here. Sorry, Vanya. Got to. So why not wait for the microphone, please? Uh, well, I just wish I had uh, my friend Hossam Bahgat here uh, to, uh, sitting with us because I, uh, I think he would have a position on what you have said. Uh, well, I think what we, uh, the way he would react here now is, uh, well, you say that the, the security apparatus would win no matter, uh, no matter what happens. On the short term. On the short Well, okay, that you should have added, you should have made it very clear, because uh, I wonder, I mean, knowing very well, I mean, the, the, the revolutionary, uh, those who people call the revolutionaries, people who are in the streets who became violent, uh, uh, understandably, because uh, two years later, two years after, uh, they have uh, lost so many of their companions and made so many sacrifices, nothing has happened. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they would not uh, react positively if there was any sort of... Uh, a uh, sign uh, of reform of the security apparatus, not even that, but a better, clear uh, way of how the rule of law is, go is going to come finally to Egypt. That's, uh, I don't know if, if you agree with that. And the second question is how, uh, well, it's on, on the economics. I mean, how do you see, uh, I mean, the economy, uh, what direction the economy is going to take? I mean, how to solve this uh, dilemma of, uh, I mean, how uh, to... Uh, 
who the international uh, uh, institution representatives w should deal with at this stage? I mean, is the people who are in power, is civil society, who they, should they support? Thank you. One more question in the first round. Sorry, Vanya, we have a question at the... <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, well, yeah, why not rebel, please? So next time we're going to concentrate the question in one circle. Thank you. Um, my name is Dina Resk. I'm doing, uh, I just finished my PhD uh, also at Cambridge University. Um, and I just wanted to ask what your outlook um, uh, was for the Copts in Egypt. Um, do you foresee uh, in the short term um, a sort of Iraqi style mass immigration? or in the long term, perhaps, a more explicit political um, uh, form of representing Coptic interests, perhaps a Coptic sort of political party, now that you have an explicitly Islamic government. Thank you. Thank you. Three excellent questions. Okay. Four questions. Four. Well, let me start with the Coptic and the economic questions, and I'm not going to talk a lot about them because um, uh, I'm sure there are people who can answer these questions better. But I would say that um, in the case of the Copts, it became um, evident after the revolt that things are not as um, clear-cut as it was thought before, that there are strong Islamist movements that represent a public mood um, that wants Egypt to become an Islamic state, and therefore Copts have a reason to fear for the future. It became obvious that there are many Egyptians who actually don't subscribe to Islamism. It was obvious that uh, when Islams, for example, in the last referendum, they barely uh, received over 60%. And many of the people who voted for them not necessarily um, were voting for, for Islamists. Morsi, the Islamist president, received barely over 51%. So it was clear that not all Egyptians are with them. It also became clear to Copts that the Muslim Brotherhood is much more pragmatic than they thought they would be, trying to uh, show a much more friendlier uh, face. So I think what Copts are worried about now is the Salafis or the fundamentalists who are pushing the Muslim Brotherhood to become more radical than they are, but they should have understood that the greatest and biggest Islamist movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, is much more pragmatic than its rhetoric suggested, and that Egyptians in general are much less supportive of Islamism than it was thought they were. I read before estimates that if an Islamist ran for president, he would get 99% of, of the population's uh, you know, vote. For the economy, again, um, I studied economy, and, but I'm not an economist, and I don't want to kind of talk a lot about the economy. But the important thing we need to know is that it is the old regime monopoly capitalists who controlled the economy controlled the channels of investment and finance coming from IMF, World Bank, US, EU, the Gulf. And so they still control the, the nerve center of the economy. And they still can make it very difficult for the Muslim Brotherhood to get things rolling economically. Uh, and so I think this is what we need to really look at. Who are they? And we know them. Why are they still in control of their factories and, and their businesses and, and their workers and so on? Uh, can we find other sources of investments and finance? That's what Morsi tries to do with Iran, going to Turkey, trying to you know, uh, replace uh, American and European investors and so on. So I think this is what we need to lo look at. 
So, but let me speak with more details on what I know about more, which I, is the security. I fear that. <laughs> we want to spend more time on the economy. And okay. So I really would like you to, since you know a great deal about the... I mean, Morsi is pressed mm -hmm. between Iraq and the harder place. Mm -hmm. The rock of the structural economic crisis, Egypt is almost bankrupt. 43% of Egyptians live in poverty. Unemployment is double digits. No productive base. Uh, phone uh, reserves have almost evaporated. Uh, trust in the Egyptian economy is... Uh, on the other hand, he realizes he needs the IMF uh, loan, $4.8 million, because also for other brings other funds, and the pressure is him, on him is overwhelming. What would you, I mean, where, wh how do you see Morsi acting in the next few weeks and next few months, given the really, uh, I mean, existential economic crisis that exists in Egypt today? What, what, what are some of the, I mean, Iran, looking at Iran, Iran doesn't have funds. Iran is in a terrible situation as well. China, well, Egypt is not, China is not interested. Turkey is focusing on its own trade, and, and you know, it's uh, Qatar gives money conditional. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's for political. There is no vision, no uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are waging literally a fierce battle against the Muslim brother. They're trying mm -hmm. to undermine. What's what's left for Messi? Where would he go from here? What would he? What can he do? The way the Muslim Brotherhood is thinking about this is that once they cut a deal with the revolutionary forces, all the old regime, they will stabilize the state. Once they stabilize the state, the money is going to start flowing. If you press them on what is their view of getting the money flowing in, their economic policy is almost the exact same policies of, of Mubarak, which they thought, which they thought was working if it wasn't for corruption. The Muslim Brotherhood are 100% uh, um, believers in the neoliberal trickle-down economics. They believe that the problem was that it was not trickling down because of the corruption at the top. And so if we replicate the same policies of the Mubarak regime minus the corruption, then this would help. We have another card that the old regime did not have, which is that we can ask people to become patient because of our religious legitimacy. They believed that once we stabilize the state, once things keep running, we can use the religious card of patience, perseverance, of waiting until uh, the economy basically gets back on its feet through the same things. Gulf investments, European investments, American investments, IMF loans. So this is their economic view. Now I need, don't need to tell you that they are very poor in their economic thinking. Uh, uh, and the reason for that is actually much deeper than appears on the surface. And this is a subject of my uh, coming work, so I don't want to give uh, too much into it. But you have to buy the book. No, no not this book. Sure. Not this book. It's in my <laughs> I will remind them. No, not it's, it's an article. It's an article. <laughs> enough to worry. Well, but you, you, yeah. you allude to it. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I've been doing this uh, seven-year ethnography with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, 50 interviews that hopefully are all com coming to fruition uh, uh, in very, on the very short term. And they, deep down, 
they really do believe in what I call uh, religious determinism. They really do believe that the radical solution for Egypt's problems is if we can get the entire population to be good, pious Muslims. If you would notice the discourse of the president, it always relates to a number of verses from the Quran that all have to do with, if you become good, God is going to send his blessings raining from the sky. They literally do believe that this can happen. It happened in the case of the Gulf. They were dirt poor and they suddenly discovered that they are swimming over oil. It can happen in Egypt, right? Who knows? And they, they actually used the revolution as a prime example of that. Yes. Uh, there were many people who were skeptical within the organization and they were saying all this passivity against Mubarak uh, it will not lead to anything. The idea is that we have to work on ourselves spiritually, work on society spiritually, and that God will then uh, reward us with a political gain. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's not historically accurate, it's not so and so. The rev revolution was the prime example that this actually works. And I'm not making this up, this is what the leaders have been telling the followers. You see what happened? We just focused on working ourselves spiritually, praying, memorizing Quran, doing all these things we do. A few well-intentioned youth sacrificed their lives to create a revolution, and guess what happened? We came to power. A reward for our spiritual struggle over that period. They think the same thing will happen to, in, economically, and that's what they're saying to their followers, and that's what they're expecting. So on the short term, short and medium term, stabilize the state, go back doing whatever Mubarak was doing before, minus the corruption. On the long term, blessing is going to start raining from the sky. They really believe it. So can I now go to the, to the security? Uh, uh, question. See, we, we benefited a great deal from your answer. About the, so no, I, I don't think so. Uh, so let me go to the security question. Now, the security question is, is a very interesting question. Now, uh, the who is the security establishment? Right now, it is the Interior Ministry. Uh, over the past 60 years, it has been many different institutions. Uh, there was a lot of diversity, and there was a lot of competition between different security institutions. It is all kind of funneled down eventually, from the late 70s and increasingly under Mubarak into minister, the Ministry of Interior. That's who they are. Where do they come from? They come from uh, all around the Egyptian society, the regular place, middle class, lower middle class, and the poorer classes. So the officers come from the middle and lower middle class, and the NCOs in the rank and file come from the peasant uh, uh, conscripts uh, that serve for, for three years. The problem with them institutionally, you're saying, why are they so cohesive? I mean, I think they have a lot to lose. Um, the security apparatus in Egypt cannot be reformed even if they wanted to. So, when you talk to some of them, they say, well, how can we work even on fighting crime? The good officers, the... the um, the good people, when they face a crime, they know who the criminal is, they arrest the person, torture him to confess the crime. The bad people just get anyone from the street and torture him to confess the crime. The idea that you actually have to build the case, that you actually can know that someone is a criminal and not arrest or detain that person, the idea that you can have someone inside a police station and 
hold back and treat him with is something that has not happened in Egypt for 60 years. They don't know how to do it. You need an entire new generation to be able to do this, right? And they think that what it will lead to is, is that you'll have criminals all around the country. So these are the people who are even thinking of reform, but they're saying it's impossible. They say, well, you don't know Egyptians. It's, it's, you know, it's just so complicated. If we do that, it will be chaos, right? Now, the other problem is socially and economically. The, the, the money that they get from their jobs uh, is actually much more money than you get from the military in terms of you know, the average salary. But more importantly, they get a lot of fringe benefits. So you go eat every day, and you don't pay in the restaurant. You go get a car, and you say, well, you know, I want it for a nominal price. And if you don't get it for a nominal price, then you'll discover that there's something wrong with your license and will close your business, right? Um, you find a business deal, and you can become a nuance unless you get a commission, right? Even for NCOs, even for whoever, you'd stop people and uh, say, well, you know, you've been going too fast. And you, you know, collect extortions. So ex extortions on all levels of the security apparatus is the way they actually survive. If you ask these people to go back to take their basic salary, that would be impossible. I mean, for them, they basically won't be able to live economically. They won't be able to survive. And this is a very big problem for them. So psychologically, institutionally, socially and economically, for them, reform means suicide, means the end of, of life as they know it. Okay? And so this is why they would not let it happen unless it's forced upon them. Now, coming to your question, I will try to explain why it will most probably be forced upon them through erosion from underneath them, through people becoming too difficult to repress, rather than restructuring from above. The reason for that is that at the beginning, there were very clear plans to restructure the security apparatus. And it was, it was laid on the prime minister's desk. For example, uh, the, political, the interior ministry has almost 48 departments. Out of these 48 departments, only three deal with police work. And the rest deal with everything else. So if you have a tourist business, you need to go to them. If you want to go for pilgrimage, you need to go to them. If you need a car license, if you need an ID, you have to go to them. Anything that has nothing to do with the police business but has to do with people paying money to the government is within the umbrella of the interior ministry. Remove all of these and they will have no more funds. Okay? Uh, the Egyptian security apparatus, the interior ministry, has been decentralized under the king and under Nasser, where each governorate had its own independent kind of security apparatus and there was a general supervision from the interior ministry. There were several laws, and I show that the important, most important of them were passed in, in, 70, uh, in the 70s, where it became completely centralized under the Ministry of Interior. So there were plans actually presented to decentralize the security apparatus, where each governorate would have a governor, and the governor is responsible for a police commissioner, and the police commissioner would be responsible for the uh, attitude of his men. So what happens in England, happens in the US, happens in many other countries. If that happens, we will isolate the kind of problematic governorates and we'll be able to deal with them. Many, many solutions were presented. Then what happened is that when the least of those, the least of those was presented by a government that has the support of the military and has support of the street, Assam Sharaf's government, and they said, okay, we're going to retire people 
who are close to retirement age, we are going to prevent people who are actually being tried for murder, we are going to prevent them from going to their jobs until the court cases are over. The, mil the interior ministry simply said, no, N no. And what happens is that the interior minister, the revolutionary interior ministry, Mansour al-Aysa, would say, you don't come to your job. Don't come in the morning. And you just come in the morning. And your men support you. And you carry out business as usual. And so sometimes it is simpler than we think. The political force tells the people, you're purged, you're retired, and you just say, no, I'm not. I'm going to come and I'm going to carry out business as usual. We've seen an example of this with the prosecutor general that was appointed by Morsi. The people in the judiciary don't like him. So, for example, when the prosecutor general's office sends a case to a judge, the judge says, well, I don't know this guy. Who is he? It's prosecutor general. I, no, as, as far as I'm interested, he's not. So, I mean, it has been impossible. And so, I th you know, with, with all due respect, all these talks about the fact that if we just come up with a good plan, uh, and I know Hussein Bagat was involved with other people in saying, well, we need to have human rights lawyers give courses to the people in the security apparatus. All these are great solutions, but they need to come way down the road when you completely dismantle and restructure what you have and you have a completely new police force. Then some of these laws and regulations can apply. But right now, anything short of destroying this apparatus from, from within uh, means that Egypt will remain an authoritarian state with a good president, with an Islamist president, with an old regime president, it doesn't matter. The heart of authoritarianism is police repression. If we don't remove police repression, no matter what we do, we'll basically end up with the same thing. Again, on the short term. I think I repeated that enough. Yes. On the short term. Another yeah, round. So this is the long yet? term. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Hi, uh, my name is Rania Saadawi. I'm doing a master's here at LSE. Um, I have a question. So it seems from your talk you're saying that the military and the security apparatus is something that we're not going to be able to fix in the short term. Fine, I get that. Now that we have parliamentary elections coming up, what can the revolutionary forces, which I don't think you give them enough credit, because they're fighting a lot of demons within Egypt as well, and they have each of them have had certain types of uh, media from old regime and the new regime, painting them in a certain picture, what can be done? What should they focus on? There are so many different problems and they have so many different ideas. And what is your idea of the National Salvation Front in terms of their idea of boycotting the, the parliamentary elections? Is this the right move? I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi's ratings has gone down to even below 50% in a recent poll. Um, do you think that there is a potential within the short term that other forces that is not Muslim Brotherhood that's not necessarily Pulul, get to play into this, stabilize the situation, and then we can start talking about reforming the security. There's a question here. Uh, yeah, Damien, please. Hi, Damien Quinn from the PC World Service. I also wanted to ask about the revolutionary forces. I mean, you mentioned that they're disorganized. What's, what's the nature of that disorganization? Is it ideological? Is it just personalities? And if they were able to get their act together, would that affect the power triangle that you mentioned? Please. Uh, hello, um, I am Fatih. I'm here uh, as an LSE undergraduate student. 
clear lesson. Organize your ranks and let us go through the parliamentary elections with one list. So the Constitution says that um, parliamentary elections are supposed to be at the end of March. Now they're going to be in April. Referendum was uh, finished in December. So we only have three months to come up with a list. And then you know what happened. They couldn't come up with a list. They said, we're not going to have one list. We're going to have two lists. And then they said, we're going to have three lists. And then they said, well, we're going to boycott the elections. And then some of them said, well, we are still with the National Salvations, but we're not going to boycott the elections. Uh, and then some said we're going to participate in the national dialogue. Some said we're not going to participate in the national dialogue. And so eventually we're going to elections next month. And they could not come together. So excuse me for being quite frustrated with the fact that they cannot even coordinate on the most superficial level their actions in any possible way. Why is that the case? Yes, 60 years of repression, disorganization, this and this and that. But until when are we going to keep complaining about this? The most promising of them are actually the people on the street. But the people on the street are still divided. So even the ultras are divided by club. So the ultras of Al-Ahli would not want to coordinate with the ultras of Zamel, right? And then once we're talking about the ultras coming together and having one kind of militant wing in the street, you have the black bloc, new group. They will also help in. So instead of actually uh, helping get five different ultras together, now we have six different bodies. And so basically speaking, uh, the, their wing, the militant wing in the street, the political wing up there, whether the adults or the youth, are very frustrating in what they're doing. My hope, the people that I do give credit, are not the revolutionaries per se, they're actually the Egyptian people, the people that made the revolution possible by coming back every day for the first 18 days, and the fact that they keep coming back until today. These are the people that eventually might help kind of erode this system uh, uh, from, from uh, underneath. Now I come to the question of the Constitution. Now, again, I don't give much attention to constitutions in my analysis, and there are many reasons for that, uh, especially in the case of Egypt. So, for example, uh, according to the constitution, Egypt's, Egypt was an Islamic state. I mean, the, the main source of you know, laws was the Sharia since the 80s. And basically, we do have laws against the Sharia, and, and, and no one says anything. Constitution, talking about security, the constitution and the law says that you can detain people for a limited amount of time, but it does not say you can torture people, you can electrify people, you can you know, hang people on the ceiling from their legs, right? Constitution doesn't say that, but people still did it anyway, right? Our latest constitution, when it was coming out, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood said, this constitution has a very important article. It says that you cannot, as a security uh, officer, you cannot stop a citizen and ask them to show their ID unless you have proof that they are involved in a criminal, like in any other country. Guess what? Every single day, everyone is stopped on the street, their IDs are shown, they're searched, their cars are searched. And when someone says the Constitution doesn't say so, police officer says what? You know, Constitution doesn't say so? Yeah. Uh, when the president, the Constitution says that he's the supreme uh, uh, commander of the, of the armed forces. When the president says a supreme commander, according to the Constitution, I order in the military in three canal cities to implement the curfew. He, along with all of us, was watching on TV as security, as military uh, uh, officers and soldiers were playing football with the demonstrators during the curfew. 
I'm pretty sure that Morsi called the CC and says, well, the Constitution says that, you know, so and so and so and so. So, for me, again, when I was talking about the situation of fire, constitutions only reflect a real balance of power on the ground. When security forces, for example, realize that they physically cannot harm people because there will be a retaliation, then they will both enshrine this in the Constitution. I'm not going to torture you, and you're not going to torch my vehicles. But a Constitution in itself is not a binding document uh, for any of the in, uh, uh, relevant actors. As in, uh, just to follow up on the question of uh, uh, a minute ago, despite the uh, dismal performance by Morsi, despite the blunders that have been committed by the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the amateurish nature, the lack of skills, the inability to do really basic things in terms of economy, in terms of what you have presented and what we know, given the fragmentation of the opposition, given the multiple cleavages, given the lack of a uh, common vision. What we're really saying is that despite everything that the Muslim Brotherhood will gain a majority, the Islamists will have a majority in April in the parliamentary elections? I think they will get um, a majority that is enough for them to pass laws. Again, uh, we, we'll have to consider the reaction of people once they pass these laws, but they will at least be able to get 40-something percent and have a few minor parties to get them over the 51% threshold to pass laws. The problem is, like I said, they need to make a deal with someone, uh, and if they don't, then these laws might be irrelevant. So, for example, we've seen they've turned the Shura Council into a parliament, right? The Shura pa Council passes a law, the uh, uh, election laws. The Constitutional Court says it's unconstitutional. So even if the elections take place, it will always, the new parliament will always be plagued by the fact that the constitutional court says the election law is unconstitutional. And the Islamists know, and we all know, that the last parliament that they won a majority in was dissolved because of what the constitutional court said. So even if they get the majority, if they do not make a deal, it will be again a lame duck uh, parliament. The reason why I'm saying, of course, we, we, I mean, I think the reason why I'm stressing this particular point because I want to really reinforce one of the big points you have just made. The reason why the Islamists will win a majority because they have the political machine on the ground. They can deliver the votes. They have mastered the art of local politics. Mm -hmm. Where the opposition does not have a machine on the ground, mm -hmm. has not mastered the art of politics, deeply fragmented, has not been able to build bridges to the countryside and the various uh, areas. But this brings me to the reason why I'm focusing on this particular point, because look what happened in Indonesia in 1999. In the first round, the Islamists in Indonesia won 42% of the vote. Their dismal record in the second round of the elections, their basically take was less than 15% of the vote. Is this despite, in, in the med medium term, as opposed to, are we to expect that you're saying the short term we know what's going to happen or we think we know what's going to happen but can we think in terms imagine Egypt in four years, five years given the dismal record of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists, seeing the Egyptian people really voting an entirely an alternative to the Islamists in the same way that they voted the Islamists out in Indonesia 
Well, again, I think the case of Indonesia is a, is a bit different because you did not have really a, um, an old regime that is still pr- as intact as the cases in Egypt uh, right now. Like you mentioned, elections need an apparatus. And we've seen that clearly in the presidential election. At the end of the day, uh, although I think the re- you know the revolutionary camp made this great mistake, people could have won. This is an exceptional situation. But what is even more exceptional is that someone like Ahmad Shafi can make so much, even in the first round. So there are two parties that are very good at winning and rigging elections, which is the Muslim Brotherhood and the old regime. And so I see that um, it is very conceivable that the Islamists are going to lose elections if the revolutionary uh, camp comes together in one political party that reaches some kind of understanding with the networks of, of the old regime and create a kind of a hybrid parliament uh, where, the, where Islamists would not be represented in more than one-third, which was what people originally thought they'd win, 33 to 35%. Uh, it can also uh, win only half of parliament if they reach a, a deal with the old regime because they have to divide the pie like I mentioned. But it would be very difficult for uh, a parliamentary majority to be produced by revolutionary forces on their own as long as these two important actors are there. So you're saying four or five years. Yes, if this uh, long-term scenario that I'm expecting happens, if you have erosion from below to the Muslim Brotherhood, to the old regime, to all of the institutions, you have a complete situation of, of chaos, and we are rebuilding from scratch, then... Uh, I can see a parliament with a majority of the revolutionary forces. Am I wrong to say that we are really seeing erosion of the legitimation of the Muslim Brotherhood? Yes. This is a real, really crisis of authority. In fact, I mean, it's fascinating to see what's happening in Egypt today. You don't have really to be an expert on Egypt to realize the deep crisis of legitimation and authority. I mean, in many ways, the the Islamists have proven to be really found naked because you can... I mean, talk about al-Islam wal-hal for ages. You have to deliver the goods. You can say Islam is good for business. Fine, but where are the goods? Where are the... uh, And that's why I I was hoping you would say that it's not just about the unity of ranks. It's about an alternative vision. What I don't see from the opposition is that what is the alternative? What is the vision economically and politically? Has the opposition provided the Egyptian with a roadmap? as opposed to blueprints. We don't believe in in this nonsense. What is the alternative vision, economically, socially, and politically, uh, uh, for the opposition? Is there such a thing? Well, again, as a social scientist, I don't usually uh, find it my place to kind of provide blueprints of what needs to be done. No, not you. Not you. What the opposition opposition, Do we have, have Egyptians been given a kind of a no. uh, vision, alternative vision. At least the Muslim Brotherhood said, look, we have al-Rasmaliyya al-Mu'mina, pious capitalism. Islam wal-hal, Islam is good for business. What is the alternative that the opposition, the various, the, the so-called the Salvation Front, or even the revolutionary forces? Well, the, the, in, in reality, there is no clear alternative uh, a vision, a comprehensive vision. So, for example, in the revolutionary camp, you have liberals, not necessarily represented by al-Baradai, but kind of like-minded people. 
their vision is simply uh, to do the right thing. So uh, we need to have real democracy. We need to have social justice. We need to have private property. We need to have respect for human rights. Basically saying we need to have good governance. Okay, how are, go we, are we going to get through the minefields of this very messy swamps uh, of the past 60 years to this good governance vision. Many of the liberals seems to make it appear that it's very simple. Other countries have done it. We just need to look at how they did it and just simply do it, right? How are we going to do it? That's not clear. The same thing with the leftists. They talk more about um, social justice. Do you want to go back to the public sector the way it was before? No. It was state capitalism. It was too corrupt. Do you want to carry out a, a communist revolution? No, not, not exactly. That's not what we want. Um, what do you want? Well, we want social justice. We want welfare. Is this the Scandinavian model? Well, are you social democrats? No, social democrats are sellouts. We're socialists. Okay, so what exactly do you want to do? We don't know. I mean, exactly. We want the workers to organize. And so you find them working with, we want workers to organize. Organize to do what? Uh, organize to get their rights. How are they going to get their rights if the state is bankrupt? You know? So you keep talking to these people, uh, and they keep talking to people via blogger, via uh, 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 Facebook, via YouTube, via media. And they don't give them anything specific to do. Right? The only people who are really providing Egyptians with an alternative are the old regime. Look, this country is in a lot of trouble. And we told you that there is no easy fix. So we admit that we might have had a few excesses. We're going to go back on the road. We're going to go back to the 80s when Mubarak was good. You know, that was the vision provided. And we're going to do the right thing now. Many people are saying, you know, get the experts, get the technocrats, get the businessmen. Uh, we, for, we, we are ready to forgive them for the past, uh, and we are willing to go back to normalcy uh, if they will promise that they wouldn't be too corrupt and too so and so. Unfortunately, the situation we're in is that there is no alternative, and it, it, it becomes more urgent because the more this situation continues, many Egyptians are saying, we don't want alternatives. We actually want immediate relief. And so... This is exactly what we've been seeing in the past few months. People, we don't want alternatives. I want a job. If you're not going to give me a job, I'm going to go to downtown, occupy the pavement, open up my shop. No one's going to remove me from here. And that's it. Um, I, I would like to really, I know, we, we, we hope we, we have not depressed you tonight. I, I want us to end on a positive note, and real positive note. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I understand you, you are, you feel... I mean, you're Egyptian, of course, like all of us who love Egypt. And are we surprised by the fierce social and political struggles taking place in Egypt? I mean, this is really normal. The great social upheavals in history have taken years. I mean, this is really part of what's happening in Egypt. What's happening is part of really what, what politics, development is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, and should we be surprised? Uh, and don't you think Egyptians are trying to really take ownership of their history by waging the social and political struggles that they're doing in Egypt? So since the book came out, I actually had close the to... The Yeah. <laughs> Please. I had close to uh, 20 talks in the U.S. And, and the U.K. And what is interesting is that despite 
the fact that they were very different audiences, very different places, I always at the end am asked by the moderator, by the chair, really? to please end on a positive note. So this is not... Uh, that's, that's, I was hoping <laughs> this it was is original. <laughs> uh, so this does not work for me. Uh, it means that I depress uh, the audience, which is not my intention. I said we. <laughs> it, it is not my intention to do so, but I'm going to give you the positive note that I give at, every, at the end of every of uh, these, these speeches. Uh, in reality, uh, revolution is a very messy business that is sometimes inevitable. So when people say, couldn't have we... Revolution as yeah. a gamble. As a gamble, yeah. So uh, people say, well, wouldn't, have it, wouldn't it have been better if we went through the road of reform? And I always say reform can continue until a point where we really um, cannot ask the stakeholders to compromise. And obviously in the case of Egypt and Syria and Libya and Yemen and many other places, we understand that we needed revolution because the, the ruling elites were not going to make the necessary concessions. Once revolution happens, I am a, a person who studies and teaches revolution in history. It is very messy. It is very frustrating. The first line of the book in the preface is revolution breaks our heart whether it succeeds or fails. Uh, and the reason is expectations are always very high. Inevitably, the results are much more modest than the expectations. But the good news is revolution breaks something not only in the regime, but also in the psychology of the people. And it is very difficult to go back to the way things are before. So the positive thing is I think it is impossible on the long term, and by the long term, I mean in the next three, four, five years, I don't mean 20 years, right? In the next three, four, five years, it is impossible to have a resurrection of the same authoritarian regimes that we had before in Egypt and in the Arab world. Uh, it will not be as good as we expected, but at least people are going to own their destiny much more than they did before. But I think that sometimes, um, looking at the long-term picture really makes it difficult for us to concentrate on the immediate business at hand. And this is my great critique for the revolutionary forces. They're always looking at that we have faith in the Egyptian people eventually, but by not looking at the immediate picture, they're making life for the Egyptian people much more difficult. They're making this semi-rosy picture of the future uh, uh, much more into the future than, than it needs to be. Well, uh, let me second uh, Hazim by saying I really believe deep in my heart and based on everything that I know that a rapture has taken place. A psychological rapture has taken place, not just in Egypt, but throughout the Arab world. And there is really no return to the old ways. Uh, I also believe deep in my heart that Umid Dunya will rise up out of its uh, difficult situations. Please join me, not in thanking Hazim, but purchasing his book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.